Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Okay, welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. I am your host, David Agronoff, and uh, I'm the author of Goddamn Killing Machines and Punk Rock Ghost Story. Uh, but I'm here with a panel of guests that are uh, that have come together because we have an unabiding love for one of the great talents of this country. That, um, I would say one of the greatest novelists this country ever produced, Richard Matheson. And the reason why um, Greg and I um, wanted to do this for a while because he and I had a conversation about just how underappreciated Richard Matheson was. And I learned the hard way when I tried to find a bunch of podcasts and commentary on the man and there wasn't much out there. So uh, I gathered this panel together. So I'm going to start by introducing um, David Scow, David J. Scow, who is a screenwriter and novelist, nonfiction writer about the genre. He's known for having written the screenplays to The Crow and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, but he's a brilliant novelist going from the kill riff to the big crush over his career. Uh, I have yet to read a bad David J. Scow novel. Um, his collection of horror shorts, Seen Red, is in an honored position on my signed bookshelf, which I got signed at Mysterious Galaxies here in San Diego. Just you um, wait. Yeah. I, <laughs> we I, have, we have a new edition. Right. And uh, also, he is a historian for the genre, having written two books, uh, at least two books about the Outer Limits, if I'm, which the, your book about the Outer Limits was, um, I got to tell you, was one of my toilet reads when I was in high school, which is, you know, you got to have that book that sits there that you can. The best review. It's the best review ever. (laughs) Right. And I believe you are the world's foremost expert on the creature of the Black Lagoon, but I could be wrong on that. But if there's somebody who knows more, I'd be surprised. Other experts are in constant battle with me. Okay. And it is a never ending war that we will, uh, we'll do a special episode on one of these days. Right. And when we come back around to you, um, you can tell us your relationship with Richard Matheson, but I'm going to introduce everybody first. Uh, John Scolari is um, the, you were recommended to me by Mr. Scow is that if I was going to do this, I had to have you on. And um, I took his word for it, but you are the author, collector and publisher at Cimarron Street Books. I was told that you have the largest Richard Matheson collection in the world. You're going to prove this to us over the next hour and a half. <laughs> I said I said I am legend. I don't know about Matheson. Okay, of I am legend, which, you know, according to a certain someone, no, I'm not even going to get into that yet. We'll get there. Uh, Greg Cox is here. He um, is a novelist, an editor, uh, he's written tie-in novels for Batman, Iron Man, and he's written more Star Trek novels than most people have underwear. Wow. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's true. And who else but Greg Cox could put Seven of Nine and Captain Kirk in a novel together? That's Greg Cox. He is here today for a very special reason, because he was Richard Matheson's editor at Tor Books for many, many years, so... Uh, he worked with the words of Richard Matheson, 
And it was an interview that I, I did an interview with Greg about his Star Trek books. And afterwards, we chatted for probably a straight hour about Matheson uh, afterwards and said, we got to record this next time. <laughs> and so Greg is here to talk Matheson, starting with David. What is your relationship with Richard Matheson? How did you discover him in a very basic way? Introduce what he means to you. Well, that's like three different questions, but yeah. um, I think uh, I think I first encountered his writing uh, uh, via Scholastic Press in uh, junior high school, where you could order these little horror anthologies from the catalog that they sent around to your school. And there was always that one page that had the two or three horror anthologies with the Richard Gid Powers covers and stuff on. And in those anthologies, inevitably, were, you know, Lord Dunsany and Ambrose Bierce and Lovecraft and Poe. But there were also Robert Block and Fritz Leiber and Richard Matheson. He's one of the perennials. I noticed early on that Matheson was a writer for Twilight Zone because I didn't really compartmentalize genres and stuff. I had read his books early on. And then um, I was working for uh, Jeff Rovin on an encyclopedia called the fantasy almanac. And uh, Jeff asked me to write Matheson's bio. uh, Also uh, Robert Block's bio at the same time. So I sent letters to these gentlemen and they sent me back these elaborate handwritten responses to all of my dumbass bio questions. (laughs) And that's that's literally how it started. That jump from there uh, to uh, Richard Matheson standing around my apartment, you know, making little humming noises, looking at books on the shelf and pulling things out and looking at them. So and we became you became friends. I was friends primarily with his son and then I became friends with his dad as well. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So uh, we're going to get a lot of insight uh, from one-time biographer, David J. Scow. Yeah. Uh, John Scolari, uh, what is your relationship with Richard Matheson? How did you discover the, the man who's, you've got so many of his books? Well, you know, like a lot of people, I was probably introduced to his work without even knowing it. He's always been one of those authors that you say the name and people may, you know, give you a blank stare. And then you, you list the credits of films, TV shows, uh, stories, and everybody's like, oh, I know that, I know that. Um, But for me, it started on uh, July 13th, 1979, David's birthday. (laughs) Um, I was a nine-year-old kid. I stayed up with my older brother to watch Night of the Living Dead on Creature Features. And this movie changed my life. Flash forward three or four years later, my brother was working in the library. And he, he comes home one day with this. And I look at it, I said, well, what's that? And he says, well, that's the book that Night of the Living Dead was based on. And I'm like, can I read it when you're done? He's like, sure. And I sat down one Saturday afternoon and I read the book cover to cover in just a few hours. And it just blew me away. It blew me away in the way that no fiction I had read before that time in my life had kind of left an impact. I, I just fell in love with it. And it's remained my favorite book of all time. It, it introduced me to Richard Matheson. And, you know, over time, I became familiar with all his other works and all his other stories. I started off thinking, well, you know what? 
I'm every time I go to a used bookstore and I find a copy of I Am Legend, I'm going to buy it because I need to share this with people. I, you know, if people haven't read this book, they really need to. And that became every time I'd find a Richard Matheson book, if I didn't have it, I'd buy it. And in time, it was like, well, now I've got all these, I've got all these different versions of I Am Legend. You know, wouldn't it be cool to get, you know, foreign versions of I Am Legend? And, you know, now at age 51, I think I've got 175 different editions from around the world. Um, several of those coming right from uh, Matheson's personal archives, um, which is, you know, nice because there are certain things that you might never otherwise see. Um, but because I was, despite my love of that book, I was such a fan of his work that one of my other kind of collecting goals, I went out to track down the first appearance of every one of his short stories. So every, you know, pulp, every digest, every slick magazine appearance, every wow. anthology. Um, and it, it took years to do. Um, and some of them are tricky. You know, he was in an issue of Blue Book in 1954 that has the first appearance of Live and Let Die by Ian Fleming. So some people want hundreds and hundreds of dollars <laughs> because of that. Ouch. And it's like, no, because it's got The Conqueror by Richard Matheson. Um, but the, probably the hardest thing to ever find was, um, and I can't remember the story that's in it right now, but he had a story in Diners Club magazine called Signature, which is not a widely saved magazine by people, you know, wow. 40, 50 years later. Yeah. Um, I've, I've got a copy and it's the only copy I've ever seen offered for sale. And, and a dear friend of mine and fellow Matheson enthusiast, Paul Stuve would give his eye teeth to find something that he could trade me to get that one last elusive uh, collector's item. But he's, uh, plotting, he's plotting right now. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, that's, that, that was my introduction to Matheson, the, uh, you know, the writer. And I had the good fortune of meeting him several times um, at world fantasy cons and uh, HWA events when he received, I think one of his grandmaster awards. Um, and the last, last public signing he did when the Will Smith movie came out in 2007, dark delicacies, who was kind of his home base for appearances uh, for the last few years to the signing. I thought I gotta, I gotta fly down for this just to, to tell him one more time what a, what an inspiration he was to me. We were both there at that signing, yeah. right? We were both yeah. at the same signing. Mm -hmm. I got to meet Matheson three times. And it's the only person that in my life that I've ever been starstruck, where the first time I met him, I just probably sounded like an idiot. But it's okay because Harlan Ellison was sucking the energy out of the room at the time, so he probably didn't notice. So, uh, <laughs> But uh, Greg, how did you discover... Uh, Richard Matheson. Well, it's funny. I, you know, I used to, there's a whole spiel that I, I used to do at conventions and at tour book sales conferences where I would stress the fact that even if you don't know his name, you know his work. You know, The Monster on the Wing of the Plane, Matheson. The Star Trek episode where he's Captain Kirk splits in half, Matheson. The Scramble Shrinky Man, I Am Legend, Hell House, et cetera, et cetera. I can go on. Zooty Fetish. <laughs> the Zuni Fetish doll, Night Stalker, etc. So yeah, I'll be honest, I don't remember when I became aware of Matheson as a person, except the fact that his work was ubiquitous the whole time I was growing up. 
mm. the Shrinking Man, Twilight Zone, and indeed stories probably in various scholastic anthologies. It seems like Matheson was always sort of woven through my, you know, pop cultural life. In fact, the night I graduated from high school in 1978, I celebrated by going to see The Legend of Hell House at a local theater. Some people go to parties. I went and saw The Legend of Hell House. Um, so it, it was strangely appropriate that, you know, I ended up eventually becoming his editor at Tor. It was indeed his editor at Tor for 20 plus years. Mm. And the story of how that happened is kind of interesting, at least in that Matheson's agent, who Don Congdon, submitted a new Matheson novel to Tor, to Bob Gleason, who was the editor of chief of Tor at the time. Bob, as is the way things work, gave gave the manuscript to another young junior editor, John Ordover, to look at. Ordover, to his credit and everything, kind of went, excuse me, um, Greg is the world's biggest Matheson fan in the office here. He really is the person who should be looking at this manuscript. And yeah, I then ended up, that book was um, Seven Steps to Midnight, which is the first book I worked with on Richard. And yeah, we ended up working with Richard for like the next 20 plus years. Although ironically, um, and I'm jealous of you guys, I only met him in the flesh once. He lived in California. I worked in New York. I met him in the flesh only once, um, which was at a snowbound world horror convention in Connecticut in the 1990s. And I have very fond memories of he and I and Bob Gleason sitting up by a fireplace in the hotel lobby, working out the plot points of a book that became Now You See It. And we had a lovely evening sitting there by the fire discussing that book. But that's really the only time I met him in the flesh. The rest of it, you know, Richard did not do email. Um, so we communicated by phone and by mail for the whole time I worked with him. So Matheson was really good on the phone. Yeah. Uh, you could call him up, he'd pick up the phone, and you could talk to him like right away. And I just realized that uh, Greg's the reason that uh, when I first started publishing a tour, you're the reason that I have a galley of Seven Steps to Midnight on my bookshelf to this day. The Bound right, Proof. We, yeah. All right, so we're going to get into it. Incidentally, it was one of the very first books published by Tor's Forge imprint. I, right. think, I think technically it was, I think other editors might argue this. I would argue, I believe it was technically the very first Forge book. Mm. I seem to recall that it was marketed that way because I was working in the bookstore at that time. Yeah, it was, there was another more high-profile book whose name escapes me now that kind of got a lot of the publicity. But I believe that, no, technically it was the first book to be published under the Forge imprint. All right, so my first book I worked with with uh, Matheson, you know. Um, and we'll get back to your working relationship with Matheson because that's really important. Um, my relationship with Matheson began, um, I was in seventh grade, right after um, my mother passed away. My father instituted a rule with me that he would buy me any book if I could prove that I read it, um, and which turned out, he didn't know how hungry I was <laughs> for genre fiction. And in the wake of my mother passing away, I, I started to discover horror and I had always been a Star Trek kid. And the reason why Matheson is so important to me is because I watched all Star Trek religiously. So I knew the name Richard Matheson because it was on the screen during the enemy within. And when in my seventh grade year, I started getting into the Twilight Zone and I just kept seeing his name and I remembered that. 
And I was at a used bookstore in my hometown of Bloomington, Indiana, and I found a shelf of Richard Matheson books. And when I saw his name on the spine of the books, I said, wait, that's the guy that wrote for The Twilight Zone. And it was the first time that it really clicked in my head, not Stephen King, not Clive Barker, that somebody writes these, (laughs) right? And this was the book that I bought. And it's Third from the Sun is the collection, 13 stories. This was my very first Richard Matheson book. And then a week later, I went back and I bought I Am Legend. And I have that copy too, which is one of my favorite editions of I Am Legend. With the I've got that cover. Yeah, the cool lettering. The cover is amazing. But that's my first um, Matheson. And uh, from that time forward, pretty much anything that was related to Matheson, I wanted to know because... I read Stephen King and Clive Barker. I was a huge fan of both. Clive Barker was probably my favorite author, uh, like young author growing up. But from the very beginning, I understood that Richard Matheson knew how to create suspense and unfold a story better than anyone. As a storyteller, I always always looked to Matheson first as like, this is, you got to read this to learn how to tell stories. And so that's, that's my relationship with Matheson. Um, And then as far as getting to meet him, I met him at a screenwriting. He spoke at a screenwriting conference in 2003 and it was great because Harlan Ellison was supposed to interview him and um, Richard Christian Matheson, his son, R.C., uh, kicked uh, Ellison off the stage halfway through because he said, you're talking too much about yourself, Harlan. (laughs) Kicked him off the stage and um, finished the interview. Owl Going Back was there with Harlan and um, a bunch of the genre writers all hung out afterwards. I was too afraid to say anything (laughs) uh, that time. But then at the Bram Stoker Awards in 2006, I got a chance to just by chance be sitting in the lobby um, when uh, Matheson came and sat down in a chair across from me while waiting to go on for a Twilight Zone panel. And we talked about I Am Legend for five minutes. I almost started crying when like, I got that chance to talk to him. And it was just purely because the chair was open next to me. When I came up to get my book signed, which I, I got my the Shadows in the Sun, the, the horror western signed, said, oh, you're the kid from the lobby. I had a great conversation with you. <laughs> and I was very excited that he, that he even acknowledged that. And um, it's just absolutely one of my heroes. So now, um, so Matheson grew up, uh, went to high school in Brooklyn, but he ended up um, serving in World War II. And he went to college to study journalism at the University of Missouri where, and, and graduated in 1949 and then came out to L.A. to pursue his dreams of writing. And he started writing with noir novels, but his first attempt at a novel was called Hunger and Thirst, which didn't get published until much later. What, what do you guys know, maybe starting with David, what do you know about those early years and how the war kind of informed the writer that became Richard Matheson. I found out all about those war years experience anecdotes, mostly after the fact. And since when I started reading Matheson, I wasn't reading according to a a strict chronology. 
Uh, it was everything that I could accumulate in the order that I could accumulate them. Probably the way that you guys did it, used bookstores and stuff like that. Uh, so uh, I, I don't really have a a beat for beat uh, timeline on that. He was part of the firmament. Matheson was part of the firmament that included guys like Theodore Sturgeon, that included guys like Fritz Leiber, you know, and included even included guys like Harlan because Harlan was a contemporary of, of Richards and uh, Beaumont, especially I became, I became, I subsequently became a huge hero of Charles Beaumont because if there was anybody even less heard of than Richard Matheson <laughs> in a certain period of time, it was Beaumont. Beaumont. Yeah. And, and uh, actually, Actually got a call from a publisher once saying can you write flap copy for this Beaumont book because nobody here has read it it's like okay mm. so uh chronologically i got nothing but he was past a certain point though he was always there in the firmament of the bookshelf mm-hmm. yeah that's if absolutely you can, true if you, can, if you can dig that yeah yeah and so um you guys republished um at tour you published beardless warriors greg so did you have did you guys work on that that forge edition or yeah 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 i was gonna you mentioned the warriors i am ready with show and tell (laughs) for those who don't know watching this this is not a horror novel it's not richard wrote a sort of semi-autobiographical experiences novel about his experiences you know fighting as a young beardless you know young man in world war ii i believe he fought in the battle of the bulge i'll be honest how this book came to happen um we were at that point publishing literature but which meant we were doing new books but also we were reprinting his backlist because believe it or not there was a period when a lot of richard stuff had fallen prior to tour when richard stuff had in fact fallen out of print he'd been off making movies and a lot of the books had fallen out of print Richard's agent, uh, may have been Don Congdon or may have been Susan Raymer, who came later, asked me to take a look at The Beardless Warriors, which had you know, pretty much fallen into obscurity. And I'll be honest, I only looked at it at first as a courtesy. I think oh, war novels are not my thing. This is probably not for tour. And I read the manuscript, and honestly, I fell in love with it. It is a really powerful book. I recommend it to people. The combat scenes are just really, really visceral. You feel like you're there. Yes, that was a later uh, paperback edition. Paperback, this is the paperback edition, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah, at that point we were publishing, you know, we made a deal, and I'm still very, very proud of the fact that we brought the Beardless Warriors back into print. I mean, and be honest, it never sold like I Am Legend, it never sold like The Shrinky Man or Nightmare on 20,000 Feet, but yeah, Tor put out, I'd forgotten, we put out a mass market paperback edition as well. What year was that, Greg? Okay, let me see. I got the book at hand here. Early 60s. Yeah, yeah that, that was not the tour edition. The no, tour the tour edition, edition. What year was the tour, tour edition? edition? First Forge edition, 2001. Hmm. 2001, okay. 2001. Yeah, it was, it was written in 19... It was originally published in 1960. Yeah. Tour published, reprinted it in 2001. And then that paperback edition you held up. Yeah, I think after I Am Led... After the Will Smith movie came out, good God, did that... You know, movie people no. had mixed views of that movie. That it boosted Richard's sales. Doing a more we that sort of riding on the popularity of the paperback edition of I Am Legend with Will Smith on the cover, which honestly to this day is probably the best selling book I ever worked on a tour. We reissued mass market, cheap mass market editions of Summer in Time and The Beardless Warriors, 
and a lot of, because he was now New York Times bestselling author of I Am Legend. Mm-hmm. And this is where I mentioned that one of my favorite moments was, in fact, the day when... That's exactly the, what it says right there. <laughs> when, the I Am Legend, when the movie tie edition of I Am Legend hit the best, New York Times bestseller list, and I had the pleasure of, Rich, of calling Richard and telling him that his you know 1954 novel had finally hit the New York Times bestseller list, you know, 37 years after he'd written it. Uh, we we reached number two, by the way. Damn you, Nora Roberts. I, not that I'm bitter or anything. Yeah, Nora Roberts is number one. Okay. Very close. Very close. But yeah, we, 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 so no. Uh, no, and by the way, everybody, jump in as you feel the need to, to now that we've done our Dave, introductions. Dave, I have, to, I have to mention that, that uh, at about... At about 15 min- 10 to 15 minutes after the hour, I'm going to turn into a pumpkin. Okay. Just in case there's something you want to get to. Okay. Gotcha. Um, so, Actually, I want to throw in one some chronological stuff. Um, oh, also, also, I thought John was going to... It's like we should mention that uh, Beardless Warriors is back, too. Yeah, well... A, uh, a double edition, yeah. Gauntlet, Gauntlet, who, you know, for fans of Richard Matheson, folks will know Gauntlet, because Gauntlet not only reissued, you know, signed editions of almost all of Matheson's novels, but they they published Lost Things, they published Hunger and Thirst. Um, in this book, The Richard Matheson Companion, there's actually an earlier a boarded novel called The Years Stood Still, which he wrote as a teenager, um, you know, very much for the uh, devout Matheson enthusiast. Um, but, you know, going back to show how early he was writing uh, and the different types of things he was writing. Um, and another area which most people aren't aware of is Matheson did some songwriting um, he wrote yeah. lyrics for songs, and I, I recently came across um, a, a periodical, the Saturday Review, that had a letter to the editor um, prior to the publication of Born in Man and Woman, um, where uh, Matheson was writing a response to, I think Oscar Hammerstein had basically said, you know, anybody can be, you know, anybody can be famous. And Matheson kind of said, yeah, it kind of depends on, it's not just being able to, to write good songs. It kind of matters who you are. Um, and this letter was published and actually they got a response from Oscar Hammerstein. Um, but, you know, for, for Matheson, um, nuts. <laughs> it's like just finding little, little bits of ephemera about him, particularly predating, you know, his first published fiction. Uh, it's kind of an interesting early work. the way he was at. There, there were those three paperback, you know, crime thrillers he published before were The Shrinky Man, which <clears throat> Tor reprinted as well. Um, but what, at least one of those, Ride the Nightmare, was adapted as an episode of Alfred Hitchcock's TV show. And in fact, and it, still pops, up, it still pops up on MeTV periodically. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, but, even, I think, you know, Shrinky Man was his, like, the first big thing, kind of, in a way, but... Well, I, I Am Legend was 54, Shrinky Man was 56, both right. Someone is Bleeding and Fury on Sunday predated I Am Legend, um, because he had written... He wrote I Am Legend in California, in Gardena, in the house that the book is set. I've actually 
I found the street on which he lived. And though I have house numbers that Ruth passed on to his daughter, Allie, to give to me, the way the way Southern California streets have broken up, the numbers no longer match. Someday I will make it to the library in Los Angeles and figure out which house was Matheson's house. Um, but they wrote that he wrote I Am Legend in the house in Gardena, set it there. Um, you can actually, clues in the book will give you directions to the street he's on if you know the names of those streets in 1954 as opposed to today. Um, but then when they went back to New York, he wrote Shrinking Man in New York, and that was the house that he wrote that in. He wrote, you know, in the basement where that, you know, all the, the big spider scenes took place were written in the basement of the house uh, they were in in New York. Part of the conversation that I had with Richard was about, he told me about writing I Am Legend that he was, because I brought up the dog chapter and how, you know, fundamental that was for me. And he told a story to me that he was writing I Am Legend for a novel writing class at UCLA. Wow. Yeah. And he said that the teacher had him read the dog chapter to the class the teacher pointed to him at the end of the reading and said, that's a writer folks. Um, according to the story he told me, but the thing that was interesting to me is that he wrote it for a class. He had already published right two crime novels. And so it's interesting to me that he was still, I mean, everyone should take that lesson that he still felt he could learn. Right. And he was still out there. And, and just imagine if you're, thinking if you're one of the people that was in that class that got a chapter of I am legend read, wow. you know, by Richard Matheson while he was writing it. So. And gold medal who published I am legend was a primarily a, a crime, you know, novel company. This was the first science fiction novel they published. So it was, it was not in their normal kind of wheelhouse to do that. So, so David, just since we're, since we're time sensitive with you and we'll, we'll, we can keep going, um, but let's talk about writing those letters that you got from Richard about his biography and those conversations you had on the phone with him. As a writer, you just, as a, a storyteller, the, the chance to pick the brain of Richard Matheson must just be, I only had a, a sitting in a hotel lobby one time Greg had a similar situation. So, but you were his editor. But David, as a writer, what was it like talking to him? I never got to pick his brain or I never sat down with the intent uh, uh, strategy of picking his brain. It was just sort of incidental. I mean, I went to his house. I went to people's birthday parties at his house. I mean, we got together for dinner. Uh, it 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 was a completely different kind of relationship. And it was in no way... Uh, a mentor relationship. And so it was very pleasant uh, for all of that because I was just as likely to read a book that he would recommend to me as he was to recommend something that he found sitting around on my desk. If we were just, you know, uh, 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 at the apartment after uh, cocktails or something, uh, if, if you will, I didn't see him as much in the later years and primarily uh, because because of, of a, a huge part of my relationship was was with uh, Richard Christian, I would get magnetized into it into events that 
his dad was automatically at. <laughs> right. You know, but um, that's how I got to meet the entire family. You know, that's how I met Ruth and Dina and, you know, and everybody. And uh, 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 so it was a different relationship in that it wasn't editorial and it wasn't uh, teacher student. Anyway, and I said, there's a there's a weird picture of us uh, sitting around at some autograph collector's house and sitting on the sofa are, uh, let me see. Ray Bradbury. Yeah. Do I have this picture here? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you can see this. Oh yeah. I, I believe Ooh. I've seen, I think I've seen, I've seen this on Facebook. Before. I think. Yeah. Yeah, with Ray Bradbury there at the end, right? Bradbury, Matheson, Block, and some young kid. And and one of these things is not like the others. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would beg to disagree, but and, uh, in the pedigree of... And that was from... Because ger- during Greg's tenure, I remember... Um, and it m- must have been Greg, or someone at Tor, said, can you blurb this Matheson book we're bringing out? That probably would surely have been me. I was, because honestly enough, at the point we brought out Seven Steps Midnight, Richard, like I said, had not really published any new books. He'd been off in Hollywood doing movies and things. So there was sort of a sense that we wanted to kind of relaunch him. I wound up up not blurbing the book because I just felt it was backwards. You know, it was like, like, me? What are you kidding? (laughs) You know, it it was like, it's very, it's very honored, but it was like, I think. And I don't, I don't know if Richard ever blurbed a book of mine, but it was, it was, uh, I thought, I know, I wouldn't feel comfortable, like, you know, because the kind of, the blurb would be, Richard Matheson, how come you haven't heard of him? <laughs> right? <laughs> right, right, right. He, he started publishing these novels in the 50s, but the big break was really the, the Shrinking Man, which... You know, we're doing this episode at an interesting time because Shrinking Man was just on Spinguli last night uh, when we're recording this. And so it was interesting because um, right after Greg, after you posted on Facebook about it being on there, I saw many, many people talking about watching that last night. And it surprised me how many people um, were, were watching The Shrinking Man. But God, that is a movie that holds up. It's a story that holds up very, very well. Between I Am Legend and, and Shrinking Man, this is what kind of creates the Richard Matheson, the genre writer, before we really get to a lot of the screenwriting stuff. And I think he probably would have been happy to be a noir writer or a Western writer if those books had taken had taken off. But um, we're, I'm so glad that he wrote genre because what he called offbeat and his weird ideas um, he was so good at thinking of these ideas. And one of the things that amazes me, and I, I posted about this the other day, the twist ending of I Am Legend is in the title, right? <laughs> the, the, the twist that he's, that Novell is the boogeyman, and that's the ending that we're working towards, is so genius, yet three movies were made from it and didn't get the ending right, you know, Um I'm just wondering, like, what you guys think about those early years of him being a genre writer before he started screenwriting, like, 
what was do you think this was the course he was meant to be on or do you think he could have had a career writing noir does anybody want to start off on that oh, um, sure why not i was gonna say the the thing about matheson that i think is a testament to his brilliance is that he touched so many genres excellently you know his westerns are really awesome. good western you know the, the journal of the gun years award won the spur award um somewhere in time is an amazing or bid time return is an amazing kind of fantasy novel um legend of hell house is a classic horror novel you know just that that he kind of bounced between these genres and and someone is bleeding fury on sunday and ride the nightmare those are all solid you know books in and in and of themselves and he so, can write a world war ii war you know more oh, yeah yep. yeah you know you, you read read that book after watching you know like saving private ryan and you're like you're, you're seeing some of the same things of this short period of time this character introduced to us as this young naive kid and by the end of it is like a completely different person um but but i think you know people people like genre because it helps them pick the things that they think they'll like and i'm a big believer in when somebody says oh i don't like musicals i don't like westerns i don't like horror movies it's i i see that as a challenge to say i can find one that i bet you'd like if you if you read this book if you saw this movie you'd say that was a really good movie. And you might still say, but I don't like horror Western musicals. And it's like, that can be fine. You wouldn't choose that. But a good story, regardless of the trappings and a story well told, which is, you know, Matheson's strength, um, is gonna is going to reach a broad audience. As I said, you know, I've, I've probably given out as many copies of I Am Legend in my life as I have owned. Because literally I have I've bought you know, hundreds of copies of this book. And I have never had somebody who I've gotten to read the book not tell me, wow, that was a really powerful book. That was really good. I was not expecting it. I've had people say, yeah, you know what? I, I just I, I just don't think I, I'm into that. For me, yeah. You don't read it, you're not going to know. Yeah. But, but it's getting someone past that hurdle of, is, you know, is this something that I would be predisposed to life as opposed to this is quality. It doesn't matter what it is. Quality is going to carry through. All right. So Greg, I really, well, I really want to see a horror musical Western now. <laughs> right. Greg, we'll drill down on your editorial ship in a little bit, but what we have scout here, I want to talk about LA and what LA specifically did for Richard Matheson in this community, because um, L- LA was famous for these writers groups back in the day, even before his generation, Heinlein and Hubbard were a part of a writers group that Tony Boucher was a part of that was made famous and Boucher's um, locked door mystery rocket to the morgue. And if you haven't read that, it's fantastic. It's a great book. Yeah. Fantastic history of, of those writers groups. But the next generation was the California sorcerers. And before uh, Matheson got a chance to um, b- before these writers got a chance to work with Rod Serling 
their friendship together and their their being a group, the William F. Nolan, Charles Beaumont, Jerry Soule, like the California sorcerers that all hung out and critiqued each other's work and it kind of treated their friendship like a writer's room where they throw ideas off each other. And think about what came out of this this group. Uh, Logan's Run, Fahrenheit 459, I Am Legend, uh, The Intruder. Um, it, it's fucking amazing to think about what the California Sorcerers did. As, an, as a person in Los Angeles, what, what place in history do you think that group together has, uh, David? Well, for, everyone, for every group like that that has a spotlight, there are a bunch of other groups of people who were writing stuff, groups and subgroups who broke up and re- reformed. Uh, I mean, because it was a, it was the era of the post beats at that time. And if you want an illumination into this period of time, a really interesting book to read is the, uh, the book on uh, 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 Bert Schulman's uh, Cafe Frankenstein. Mm, I've never that heard of that. He, yeah, it was, a, it, it was a hangout of George Clayton Johnson's. And uh, you can read the flip side of the story where whenever Matheson would do an interview, he would say, well, because Richard would like very modestly say, well, I didn't do as many drugs as the others. You know <laughs> what I mean? But that's a side, that's the side of it too. And I think that uh, uh, one of the fundaments of uh, Matheson's staying power is the fact that he caught the uh, he, he he caught the, the the quadruple crown, basically he could he could write novels, short stories, television, and movies equally adeptly, and yes. there are very few people with any lasting power in uh, in, in, in career lasting power that can do that sort of thing. I also think that people tend to look at this thing from the wrong end of the telescope, in that, well, Richard took this writing course at, at a college or or. Uh, sought to better his abilities people tend to look at writers as people who sit around and elegantly choose their career path <laughs> right? right they sit around and they go hmm from the tops of my ivory tower what should i select as my next project right you know what i mean it doesn't happen like that at all folks it happens like you go maybe this will work maybe this will work so you write a noir novel you write a horror novel, what, even before they're even really called that. You know what I mean? Uh, because uh, you, it, it, you're talking about a time that's quite different from a time where horror was a label and horror was a genre. I know because Greg and I were there when horror became a label and became a genre. Right. So um, it's if you just have the talent and you have the drive, there was nobody that was as well known as they needed to be during that time with the possible exception of Bradbury. Mm -hmm. Bradbury was the science fiction person who people who didn't know about science fiction knew about because he was in Reader's Digest or Life magazine. And and Bradbury, more importantly, was a fantasist that all of these guys looked up to that were not, uh, Bradbury was not uh, hung up on, on the hardcore stories of rocket jockeys. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And proto-military uh, a space fiction. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but Bradbury had the lyrical side, and these guys all looked up to Bradbury. You Which know, is- Bradbury, Bradbury was the invisible finger on the green hand. 
And nobody can look at the work of Charles Beaumont and Richard Matheson and see that they're not, they're just as good a writers as, as Bradbury. It, they just di- didn't connect in the same way or, or whatever, but you know, like, there were writers, uh, there were writers who were working entirely independently of the Southern California tradition that you cite, which I think is, is fundamental and important as a cog in that, in, in that mechanism. Because well, there were guys, there were guys like, there were guys, none of the, none of the people in America had ever heard of, like Gerald Kirsch, mm-hmm. were writing just as good, just as much, and just as broadly, but mm-hmm. weren't on that radar. Yeah, and I admit that's a name I don't know, and you know that makes me go. We'll, I gotta, we'll get into that. I got to read uh, more. I'm always looking for those. I'll give you the short letters. version, Dave. I'll give you the short version. Go find a paperback. It won't cost you a fortune uh, called Men Without Bones. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just read the stories in that. And that brings, brings me to another thing about Matheson. Uh, I think that one of the reasons, I, I wouldn't exactly call it invisibility. I might ask John for help with, with like what the word might be. But it's, it's like when you speak of Matheson being underserved uh, reputationally, I think a huge part of it is the fact that his stories have never been organizationally accounted for. I mean, the closest that he ever came was several volumes of shock. And that was what in the sixties, you know, at least, I mean, it's been decades since those, but there are, there are, um, you know, everybody has third from the sun. Everybody has the shock books. And then Valancourt did this a year or two ago. Oh, it was so good. This was a great, this was a great step in the right direction, but you know what, except for that, that scream press book that was, must be at least 30 years old. Right, John. Uh, It's like there, there's no, there's no multi-volume collection of, of, of Matheson. There is no collected stories of Matheson or the early stories of Matheson. And I think this is something that really needs to be accounted for. Well, and Greg can talk because Tor, Tor has put out, well, you know, when in 95, when they released I Am Legend, it was I Am Legend along with other stories and then Shrinking Man along with other stories. And they did a collection duel and, uh, you know, have done other collections of stories, but Gauntlet did a three-volume trade paperback collected stories, which basically was kind of reprinting what was in the screen press book. But there, there have been stories published since then. There have been stories that have remained uncollected. And again, being, being one of those people that tracked them down, you know, I, I created a database so I could keep track of every story, where it originally appeared, which collections it's been reprinted in. Um, so I can kind of, you know, pull those things up and say, okay, what's not been reprinted in the last X years? Um, and there are still, you know, key stories from early in his career that haven't kind of come back out other than, you know, a deluxe edition from Gauntlet. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. I discovered the same thing with Beaumont. It's like, no matter how complete you thought you were, you were always missing three stories. And it depends. And it depends on what. Fortunately, Matheson didn't have this problem so much. But you know, Beaumont would turn around and write under a pseudonym and drop of a hat. 
and right. and it was like ah. so now you got to track this down and now you got to verify whether it was a but but yeah it's like almost you have to have somebody at the helm of a project like this committed to uh doing the homework right well and one thing that's interesting is that that serling went to all the serling was guided to the california sorcerers by bradbury before their relationship yeah. with sour and then once he found this group of writers one of the things that's cool in the last couple of days i've listened to a bunch of serling interviews and stuff and and he always made a point to mention Beaumont and Matheson and share and, and George Clayton Johnson and share the, like when he won his Emmy, he said, let's carve this up like a Turkey. They were the, they were the crown princes of his empire. Right. And, and he never failed. And he acknowledged them. That, that was the real. Yeah. That was, that was unusual. You didn't see Roddenberry doing shit like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you didn't. And, um, and and as many, you know, Roddenberry brought in tons of writers that that didn't even get to write tracks, but pitched ideas. I mean, I, when I found out that A.E. Von Vogt did three or four pitches for the original series. Yep. And they're bonkers, right? Um, which you can read about on Memory Alpha. But it's like, when you look at, you know, Roddenberry wasn't definitely not giving the attention especially when you look at dc fontana and her role and how important she was to star trek and the fact that serling like named matheson and beaumont it, it, particularly for matheson it helped get his name out there i think in the hollywood circles but he was already working for corman before before serling so that transition, but but Dave, you have that problem of, and you have that Holly, particularly Hollywood problem, but uh, uh, not that the publishing industry didn't discover it and use it to its own worst advantage, but the problem of, yeah, but what have you done recently? Right, and right. If you have a TV show that you had on last season of a TV show, you can point at that, and it's like this has affected me as recently as last year. As long as I had a show within the last year, I'm golden. And then after that, they sort of go, yeah, well, you don't have anything new. Right, right. Well, but the interesting thing about Matheson, and, and particularly as he got into screenwriting, was when when he sold the rights to Shrinking Man, it was contingent on his being able to do a draft of the screenplay. And I think smart, very had smart. He not, had he not done that or had he, you know, had he caved on that for money, you know that very easily could have put a put a different trajectory on his you know opportunities for the future screen. And, and also remember, Richard was I a guy who may not be having the same fight right now. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, Richard Richard was a guy who was a working writer. This is another very important distinction to make. He had a family to support. It's like he he had kids to support, and it was like. As far as I know, Richard Richard never actually tore up a check and sent it back. You know what I mean? But as a, as a consequence, he was notoriously cantankerous about th- stuff made from his work. You know, he's, he'll go, I'll disqualify this whole thing because they painted the door the wrong shade of beige and it wasn't the right shade of beige from the book. And it's like, fuck that movie. You know, <laughs> which is kind of ironic when you consider he actually adapted, you know, the works right. of other people and took liberties when adapting, say, Poe or whoever. Or oh, right, exactly, exactly. But that's part of this. That's part of the Greg. You you know, especially 
that's part of the schizo nature of being a writer to begin with on the ones it's the, the do what I say, not what I do category. I'm schizo being a writer and an editor. So I have the two yeah. half, like, you know, Ooh, writers, temperamental children. Oh, editors, mindless Philistines. Okay. Oh, right. I'm both. Okay. You know, what, what have I, what have I, it's I a left, it's a left brain, right brain dichotomy that you got to yeah. work out. Well, and he was as a screenwriter, he was involved in writing just the fact that he was involved in writing Duel and the Night Stalker alone, not to mention the Roger Corman, the Roger Corman movies, which are all the best of the Poe adaptations. Um, you know, it, it, the Shrinking Man was such a great script. Like, um, but what was really interesting is I saw an interview with Dan Curtis where he was saying that when he first read the Night Stalker script, um, he was already a Matheson fan, but he couldn't believe just how readable the script was and how he just loved the process of reading the script. And well, I don't think that's all. Day, every time you see an article, which sometimes don't even mention Matheson on like, you know, the 10 greatest, scariest TV movies of the 70s, you can usually count about like, three or four of them being Matheson. Exactly. I, I'm sort of notorious for going onto the MeTV Facebook page and going, oh, by the way, um, Dracula, Night Stalker, Zuni, et cetera, you know, those are all Matheson, you know, which may not be mentioned in the article, you know. You right. know, David was talking about, you know, that that looking at things and, and finding, you know, only being able to see the faults in them. With I Am Legend, particularly with I Am Legend in the film adaptations, um, you know, Matheson's I Am Legend screenplay, The Night Creatures, has been published. And yeah, I will say, you know, my love for Matheson notwithstanding, there are changes he made in his screenplay to I Am Legend that I don't think improved upon the book. And I think The Last Man on Earth, you know, for the faults that it may have in terms of whether Price was, you know, appropriately cast for the role. Um, my biggest issue with Last Man on Earth has always been in, in making Price a scientist as opposed to the everyman that Neville was in the novel. It, it just changes things. Because suddenly he's really aware of what's going on. You know, he's not working through the same sort of issues. But you put that aside, the things with the dog, the things with his wife and his daughter and the, you know, with Ruth, there's so much of the book in Last Man on Earth. You know, there's a reason why fans of the book say, well, that's the best adaptation because it's the, up until recently, it's the only adaptation. Omega Man was not an adaptation of the novel at all. Um, every screenplay that's been written since the Omega Man has been a remake of the Omega Man and not an adaptation of the novel. And it's yeah. only, you know, thanks to David last year, we were able to, not thanks to him, we were able to see it. Thanks to him, I was able to see it. A Spanish student film from the 60s yeah. was made available online for a week. I'm good. In some ways, a, the most strict oh, adaptation at times of the novel. There are literally... You can watch scenes and read the pages of the book and say they they transformed that exactly. Now it was short, um, but but other than that, um, Last Man on Earth is still the closest we get to I Am Legend in terms of you know bringing that story to screen. And yet Matheson again throws the whole thing kind of out with, well, yeah, it's it's not really my book um, because another screenwriter was involved and. 
like I said, I think one of the key things but he did was change. that's a classic. That's a classic screenwriter excuse. Um, right. Because they'll sit there and go, because if anybody perceives your work as being screwed up, you can blame the fact that other hands were on it. You can blame the fact that another dog came along and lifted its leg on your screenplay. If they like it, you can take credit for it. And another thing that happens with, because I've been the victim of this too many times. It's like you go back and adapt your own work enough times. You have to mess with it because it's boring. It's like, it's like, chewing the same food over and over again except <laughs> you know i adapted a tv episode where i screwed it from top to bottom just to see what would happen and it was it was like hmm that's interesting the world will never see the result of this but but uh, it was an interesting experiment and math and matheson being a creative guy being a friend of mine being somebody that i know or i sense thought this way automatically because if we weren't in the same tribe we were close and uh it's like no i'll do anything i'll mess with anything nothing is sacred among my own work if i'm messing with it if you're messing with it that's a whole nother question Mm -hmm. because if you've ever done if you've ever taken a studio meeting you know the types of people that are assigned to mess with your work (laughs) right they literally should be running around on all fours yeah. Well, and he did an amazing job with it. And it's funny too, because you have certain movies like what dreams may come is not terrible, but compared to the novel, it's, you know, if you, I think that if you see that movie, but you've never read the book, it's, I thought, you know, I've talked to people that really liked it, but my problem is I read the book before I saw the movie. So I can't get that out of my head. And then the fact that I know that there's a Richard Matheson screenplay out there. Yeah. You know, for that, it just hurts to think that we could have possibly gotten that. And then um, it's funny that screenwriting conference that I went to when somebody brought up what dreams may come, that was when Harlan was still on stage with Richard and, and Harlan was like, was like awful awful terrible terrible movie and i'm friends with robin and then richard madison was like richard was like hey let me bash it <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> like let me let me let me do that and it was very funny uh well, dave well, dave would you say um especially in the case of uh uh somewhere in time mm-hmm. and uh and what dreams may come do you think you could walk in and see those sit down and watch those movies and know that Matheson wrote them? Well, you know, I've thought about this. That's a really interesting question because, you know... My immediate answer is no. Well, I was going to make the point we were discussing earlier, just going back, we're talking about his, not invisibility, but perhaps lack of household name status. Exactly. And I think part of the issue is the fact that Richard did resist being pigeonholed because he right. did experiment with other genres. Because, honestly, like I said, I can, you know, he... he always tried to do different things and you would not imagine that somewhere in time in hell house were written by the same person. He was not a, I think he did not become a brand because he, his imagination was all over the place. But also, imagination he didn't repeat himself. Brand. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not sure Matheson ever wrote a sequel his entire career. Unlike say Frank Herbert, who became the doom guy. There is not, right. you know, son of I am legend, return of I am legend, I am legend saga volume seven, you know, 
or the return of the shrinking man. So again, I think that runs against, you know, I mean, Richard had a wonderful career and a great career we're now talking to, the degree in which he didn't become a brand, it's because, well, are you talking to Richard Matheson wrote somewhere in that time, the guy who wrote the war novels, the, the Westerns, the sweet sentimental love stories, the really gritty horror stories, you know. But you who know, else would, there, would you write could it say what is a Stephen travel. King story? What is a Richard Matheson story? Well there's who else there's, would write you know, a time travel story where the time travel device was a penny? Right? <laughs> you know, like that was there not was there not an anthology of stories inspired by Matheson? Yes. yes, there was. He is legend. It was done as a small press thing, and then I got the rights and we reprinted it at Tour. Oh, okay. Stories inspired by Richard Matheson. Yes. Okay. It was called, I believe. And there is, it, there is. Was it He is Legend or I Am Legend? One, Hang on. I'm going to stick to my shelf here. Yeah. <laughs> right. so, John, what did she say? There, there is technically one book that could be considered a sequel, and that is The Legend of Wild Bill Hickok. Oh, okay. It is, it is told letter, yeah. by the same character that tells the story of Legend of the Gun Years. That is true, and I would argue that's a footnote. But um, <laughs> but yeah, this is the book. He is Legend, an anthology celebrated by Richard Matheson. And to give credit, it was edited by Christopher Conlon. And uh, yeah, I think it was originally published as a small press by Dream Press or Gauntlet or somebody. Gauntlet, and yeah. then I did a deal to do a trade paperback edition for tour. Mm. Yeah. Well, not being high toned enough to qualify for inclusion in that book. <laughs> well, I will say that I went. Can... I went off. I went off on my own, and I wrote a sequel to The Incredible Shrinking Man, mm. <laughs> called The Incredibly Dinky Man, about Scott Carey's about Scott Carey's grandson. And you can find it in some fine uh, Cimarron Street edition, <laughs> Cimarron Street book. John and I. We're pushing this stuff out onto the world, whether we're legit or not. So, you know, I wrote it as a I wrote it as a tribute to Richard with the intention of reading it to him on his birthday. And I missed it that year. And then he was gone. Wow. Bummer. I see. Actually, my memory is a little fuzzy here, but just looking at the table of contents here. And I point out that this is a book I did not actually edit. So. I'm off the rap for not actually approaching David Scow. And I would blame Chris. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, no, no, I wouldn't blame Greg for a second. No, man. It's like because I. <laughs> but I see that yeah, a, yeah, you're Nick, a prequel Nick to Hell's House, a sequel to Shrinking Man, Nick Harris inspired by. You know. I Am Legend that's in there, yeah. the additional piece. And it brilliantly captures the feel of the writing of the novel. It, it's, you know, it, it, he, he nailed that. It's about. Ben Cortman, the neighbor, mm. and Neville, and Neville and Ben Cortman's wife kind of having an affair. And it's so wrong to, in my head. <laughs> but I, I, like I said, I give Mick credit. It reads like he sat down, not just to do a sequel, but to basically write a story in as close to Matheson's voice as I Am Legend was written, that it, it, it has the same kind of uh, flow to it. It really works. But it's just my my issue with it is more about it's like oh I don't like you doing that with the characters that I have <laughs> my own opinions of and for and David is one of the things I would say is that I I think your point is valid for somewhere in time more so than what dreams may come right. because what dreams may come has the the scenes in hell which I think is the scene in hell is the most terrifying thing that that um, 
Richard Matheson ever wrote over I Am Legend. I think that that chapter is just absolutely terrifying. And I think that you get a a, a clue as to, to who's writing that from, from, from that perspective anyways. I'm, and yeah, I'm curious as to what you guys thought, basically. And, and mentioning Mick Garris, um, he would have been a good fifth for this panel because Mick got to work with Richard on Amazing Stories. Yeah. So this is middle eighties Matheson well, where two. <laughs> he's sitting, yeah, he's sitting on a panel with people over at uh, universal studios. He's sitting there with the dream team mm-hmm. and you're getting story notes from, you know, Richard Matheson. Yeah. Yeah. His amazing stories experience was Yeah. I've listened to him talk about it in interviews and you know, it's, it's fascinating too, because he, as a storyteller, he just, he was so smooth about his ability to just find the ideas. And I remember Greg corrected me the other day and Greg, by the way, to quote one of our favorite movies, um, you go right ahead quoting regulations, sir. Um, if, if I say something wrong about Madison, you correct me. So um, you, you had the gist of the story, correct. You just had the details a little distorted. Yeah. You know. And the, the story was, is that, you know, he was talking about somebody wearing an unfitting hat and that's where Shrinking Man came from and watching Dracula is where I Am Legend came from. And the the, the easy flow to which, you know, the ideas came to him were, were just, um, he was so good at explaining where his ideas came from too. Some writers can't do that, you know, famously, but, um, but I think that's one of the things that he that he did have going on. Now, I wanted to talk about, we talked about this before we started recording, but as much as I respect author, screenwriter, critic, um, um, Robert Cargill, uh, I heard him on a podcast refer to I Am Legend <laughs> as Richard Matheson's one really great novel. That just blew my, I, my you could have seen the steam coming out of my ears when I was listening to that because... Um, I almost think it's the other way around. It's like, you know, which novels are the clunkers, you know, and maybe some late in his life were not as good as what he was doing when he was earlier, but Shrinking Man, Stir of Echoes, Hell House, um, Bid and Time Return, What Dreams May Come, um, Journal of the Gun Years, um, Shadow of the Sun, Beerless Warriors. Like, my God, anybody would, would want to have four of those, three of those in a career. And um, I just want to get your opinion on the novels as a whole, like the body of work, starting with David. I'm a big fan of Ride the Nightmare. Mm. Uh, just as, as a novel. I mean, I got, I got it in several incarnations. I've got three or four versions of Beardless Warriors uh, at this point. And that's kind of where my sweet spot was. And my sweet spot for that is quite different from the sweet spot of Matheson as icon where I have like that gold medal paperback that John has that just happened to be the one that Matheson whisked off the top of the pile in my, in my, in my bedroom and signed, you know, once. Um, So I, I am fans of those classics, but I don't think I'll ever get through earthbound. Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely not the uh, Logan Swanson version. Yeah, right. Oh, I, I actually don't mind Earthbound, but um, I think Hunted Past Reason was one that didn't nail for me quite as well. But 
And I think that that's the point is that like when you have so many classics, first of all, nobody's going to write that many books and be perfect. And especially somebody who can get pretty much, you know, anyone's going to take a Matheson novel if they get a chance to get it. Right. Yeah. And some, and some of the later books were kind of lumpy and weird. Mm. But at the same time, you know, like to say that there's only one great Matheson book is just, uh, I mean, you can maybe make the point that I am legend. If you, I would rephrase it. Maybe you know, if you can only read one Matheson novel, there you go. And yeah. you could argue that it may I can be live with that. Influential since it pretty much is the yeah, grandfather of the entire zombie apocalypse subgenre. But to say yeah. that he's not like it's Bram Stoker and he had like the one good book, you know. Yeah, and, and it's like the rest of the argument. Just unless you want to just get in an endless pissing contest on social media, what's the point of that? You know. I mean, yeah, and even you can't. Yeah, obviously, there's going to be, you know, Earthbound. You know, yeah, we, I, I reprinted Earthbound. No, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I I'm sorry. I'll be the first to. Oh no, hey, I did first to say that. No, that if I think, oh, you love Matheson, read Earthbound. That's not the book I would push on. <laughs> no, actually, so, um, actually, I would say if you you love Matheson and you read classics. Read Ride the Nightmare. Yeah, Riding no, the, Nightmare. The, the three books in Noir are we, we published. They're wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it gouged me. I walk my shelf again. Um, well, and and John, for you, like I, as big of a fan as you are of I Am Legend, that I'm sure that's still like a head slapper to think. Yeah, I, I I would I would put I Am Legend at the top of my list because it was my introduction to Matheson, and it and it's still in so many ways. There's so many things I I can go on and on about it. One of the things I love about it, and one of the reasons why I think I couldn't put it down the first time I read it is the structure of the book is so brilliantly written that you get to almost every chapter ends with a hook that dares you to stop. So whether it's, yeah. it's whether it's, Oh, and I'm going to spoil it a week later, the dog. Okay. We're not going to say what he looked at his watch and he realized it had stopped. His wife is at the door saying, Robert, yeah. It's like there are those things where you're like, holy crap. And you just yeah. have to keep going. And and it's not contrived. It's not like you're reading the book and it's like, oh, he just set this up. It's like, no, it's like, oh. And then he, you know, the guy comes to the door and it's Ben Cortman. And you're like, oh my God, Ben Cortman. I know who that character is. He's um, not he's not grinding sausage. He's not writing pulp. You know, yeah. he's got a definite strategy for this and he wants to thrill you yeah and and for me the thing about matheson is that no one writes the beats of suspense better than him as far as like they're almost like rungs of a ladder that you're climbing in the story and he always hits every rung and just has and builds suspense higher and higher and higher so perfectly even in books like What Dreams May Come, which is mostly a romance, but like that chapter in Hell, for example, is, you know, and the way the story builds, it's, it's so perfect. And that's what I think he's really good at, in my point, or like the thing that where I point to is like... Well, to, to revisit the observation that Greg made a little while ago, because I got I got to go shortly, mm-hmm. uh, uh, was that Greg talked about Matheson resisted resisting doing conventional ways of things. And I think that it wasn't even conscious 
in Matheson's case. It was not an active resistance. It was not a program of resistance. It was the way the guy that was wired. He couldn't write a conventional story. And so whatever the question earlier about, gosh, if he hadn't been diverted into genre, could he have had a career as a Western writer or mystery writer? And my last answer is he could have tried, but honestly, yes. I think he was pushing the boundaries. His imagination was such. I don't think you, you could have held him in the West, even if he became a successful detective writer. Yeah. You could have kept him in the detective. He would have been pushing the boundaries. Even in his Western, Shadow in the Sun, which has been repeatedly over the years sold as a Western. Um, a horror, it's a horror novel. novel. Yeah, it's absolutely. Uh, I was actually surprised when I wrote it the first time because Ace originally published it as a just straight category Western. I read it and, oh, Jesus Christ, this is Richard Matheson's lost horror novel. You know, it, 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 it's a horror novel set in the Old West. So, yeah, I, I don't think his imagination could be combined to probably it helps that he went into genre because at least the boundaries are a little looser there and time travel, you know, you know, even and though you know, a you know, fiction writer, horror writer, fantasy author, that at least allowed his imagination a little bit more free reign to wander off the reservation, as it were. If, if you stay in genre long enough yeah. uh, or, or in, in the, in the uh, orbit of multiple genres, eventually people will begin to connect the dots. Yeah. And I think that he would have uh, he would have excelled in any field that the gravity might have drawn him into, other than this. But he had the good fortune of uh, uh, he had the good fortune of being in the Twilight Zone. He had the good fortune of being in with the Corman and Beaumont uh, a bunch, and so that vectored his career in that direction enough times that we could identifiably assign a genre to him. Before you go, um, just real quickly, Greg, because we'll keep going. But um, David, before you go, do you have anything that you want to promote or things coming out that you want to want the listeners to find? I will leave that to John. Okay, because I can. (laughs) (laughs) All right, John, you and I get to interview Greg about being his being the editor for Richard Matheson for the for another twenty minutes or so. So, uh, Mr. Scout, thank you for. No, I want to see it. I want to see it. I'm sorry, I got to jump, but I got to. I got to. It's okay. You got to do what you got to do. We appreciate the time that you gave us and the insight. Um, I want to. I want to see this with the missing bits. And it's good. It's good to see you, Greg. After all this time. Yeah, it's been a while. And John, I'll see you probably later today. Yep. And, and Mr. Scott, I will have you back to talk about your work at some point. Um, oh, I'll never shut up. Yeah, yeah, let's do it sometime. Um, thank you, man. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Now, I'll see you. <laughs> Greg, um, on that note, uh, how did your situation with, um, how did you, so Ordover was offered Seven Steps to Midnight, but that's what started it. When, when you were given this chance to work with Matheson, were you told, like, hey, you could be the Richard Matheson guy for his whole back catalog, or, or did that happen? Oh, oh, God, no. No, it was much more. And indeed, at that point, at the point where it was given to me, we hadn't even bought the book yet. Seven Steps to Midnight was submitted to Tor. Our editor-in-chief, Bob Cleason, gave it to John Ordover to look at it and basically write a report and say, should we pursue this? And Which I think is an underrated point, novel. It's a great thriller. Thank it's you. One, and at that point, like I said, you know, John, to his credit, said, oh, you need to, Greg is the Matheson fan in this office. He needs to be the guy who looks at this. 
I looked at it really, really like the book and basically went to the powers and be and said, you know, gee, you know, we, you know, this is Matheson, this is Tor Books, we should be published. I remember saying, yeah, look, we published Robert Block, we published, you know, all these other people. We, you know, Matheson belongs at Tor. So I think we, as I recall, we bought Seven Steps to Midnight and just that one book. And I think around the same time, Bob Gleason said, well, while we're doing this, let's grab The Shrinking Man and I Am Legend too. You know, and he was sort let's of around the same Let's just grab time. those, yeah. yeah. But, well, the point I do want to make is we think of his being- they were, they were there for the grab, man. Being yeah. ubiquitous. And you, I'm very proud of the fact you can go into a Barnes & Noble now and there'll be a Matheson shelf. All this stuff was like out of print at the time. Um, and no, yep. and we, we did not bring it back with a coordinated plan. I, I'm backtracking a lot to previous conversations and I didn't want to step on David's toes, but, you know, Tor did publish four or five Matheson short story collections, but David's right that there was not a systematic plan. They were kind of market driven, you know, as it happened. Oh, not look, the box is being made into a movie. Let's make an anthology called The Box and Other Stories. Oh, look, Steel is being made into a movie. Let's do Steel, Steel and Other Stories. They were sort of there wasn't an organized plan to get them all out in a systematic. And there was a vague sense I had of, okay, let's put the, all the vampire stories in one volume and let's put all the sort of sci-fi stories in one volume. But no, it, it accumulated. So it, what happened was, no, we started with Seven Steps to Midnight. And a point I wanted to make was, I will say the first time I sat down and edited Matheson, I was intimidated. I mean, I was this young kid. And Matheson had literally written classics before I was born. Yep. You know, The Shrinking Man. I, how do, who am I, this young pipsqueak, to tell Richard Matheson how to write? And I, honestly, I think I kind of went very gentle. And the point I wanted to make is um, Richard Matheson turned out to be very, very easy to work with. He was, you know, he had every reason to be a prima donna and you do not touch my sacred prose. But no, mm -hmm. Richard was surprisingly humble. And for the length of our entire career, you know, he was always open to editorial criticism, suggestions. Uh, he never he never pulled rank on me and saying, hey, kid, I am the bestseller. I am the writer of I of Legend. Don't tell me this scene doesn't work. In fact, I will say, finally, there was one little thing in Some Steps to Midnight that I had kind of issues about, but I didn't push him about it. And then there, some of the reviews came out. Some of the reviews said, oh, great, wonderful book. Great to have Richard Matheson back. We're not sure about this one point. I'm going, okay, damn it. I took that as a lesson that I need to actually step up and, you know, push back and, you know, not and the first too time humble you, when editing Richard Matheson. And the first time and then you on, I kind of like, okay, the gloves are off. Okay. <laughs> you, know, you remember the first time great. you had to do that. And then. And do you remember the first time you had to do that and how it went? Like, um, Is that the title for Hunted Past Reason? Oh, no. That, that, that's you know, years down the road because Hunted Past Reason was very, very late in the day. No, no, no I, I meant um, that uh, David was asking the first time that you had to kind of oh, well, no, line. I was No, I was wincing because he didn't like Hunted Past Reason and that was one of the ones I edited. Mm -hmm. um, I will say, honestly, the only serious disagreement Richard and I ever had on that book, and this is a confession on my part, was the title of that book. Mm -hmm. The title was my idea. Richard hated it. Um, and I regret that. Because I like the title. Um, Thank you. And um, I will say in my defense, and this is airing dirty laundry here, but, you know, I, I, again, we never met in person. We communicated by mail and by phone calls. 
I underestimated the degree to which he disliked that title. Mm -hmm. We were strongly with the come up with a title. We were certain deference traits. Honestly, there were deadlines, catalogs and things coming up. And eventually I suggested Hunter Past Reason to him. And he kind of, in my defense, grudgingly, oh, okay, I guess we can go with that. You know, he agreed to it. I think then as time went on, it kind of like nagged at him. And I remember at one point he came back to me, are, are we stuck with that? And at that point, okay, well, we, the catalogs have been printed and the covers. And it, it's like it would have been a whole thing. But again, I, I fault myself for failing to pick up a, a bite from 3,000 miles away, the degree to which he did not like the title. And then the book came out, and in every single interview he gave, he mentioned how much he hated the title. <laughs> but certainly, certainly you know, and I, I regret that. But it, no, honestly, in the 20-plus years we worked together, that's the only time we kind of ended up at loggerheads, just, you know. And so um, your, your experience of sitting down with him um, and working with him in person, um, I'd like to drill down on that a little bit more. Like, oh, yeah, that was great. That was a wonderful experience which I remember fondly. Um, and I should mention that Bob Gleason, who was the editor in chief, was present. This was at a hotel in Connecticut. We were snowbound. I refer to this as the Donner Party Convention because <laughs> you, know, you couldn't go out to get anything to eat. And the coffee shop was like open, I swear, like two hours a day. So we were all starving. It was the Donner Party Convention. But no, we ended up sitting by a fireplace one evening. And it was for the book, which was then going to be titled Magician's Choice and later became... Now you see it. And the story of that one was, it actually started, that started out as a play. Mm-hmm. It was going to be a theatrical play in the manner of Death Trap and Sleuth. And I'm not sure if it was ever actually produced, but at some point Richard had the idea to turn the, turn the play into a novel. And our conversation that night was basically about the challenges of taking something that was written for the stage and fleshing it out and turning it into a novel. And that was what we sat around discussing that night. And the actual issue was figuring out who the viewpoint character was. Because for those of you who have not read it, I'm talking to the audience out there on YouTube, because obviously you, you and John, yeah, you guys have read it. It's a very twisty, twi- twicky, you know, murder mystery thing in which every nothing is as it seems and everybody has a secret agenda and nobody is quite who they seem, which meant you could, it works on the stage when you're seeing the audience. But in a book, okay, you know, you, how we couldn't go into the head of any other character without revealing that ah, so and so is actually, and their real motive is. So I mean, he did a draft where he just wrote it as a novelization almost of the play, where he never was just totally written from an omniscient point of view. And I didn't think this quite worked. And it read like a novelization of somebody sitting in the audience watching the stage play. So we had to come up with an issue, and I can't remember whose idea it was. It probably was Richard that we we needed another character who was not in the play, who was a person who was not one of the scheming, who was in fact an innocent, you know, who could serve as the audience surrogate to, you know, see all this stuff going out and, you know, but who also honestly wouldn't affect the plot too much. We, so we, finding a audience surrogate viewpoint character for the book was what we sat around talking that night, you know. And for those of you who have read the book, what we came up with, and I honestly, it was probably Richard's idea, but I remember it's all back then, that it was an old man who'd had a stroke, so he's largely sitting in a wheelchair. And in fact, people think he's a vegetable, but he's not, which means they are comfortable talking about in front of him about their diabolical plans to murder so-and-so, 
oh, don't, what, what about the old man? Oh, he's just the drilling vegetable. He doesn't know, you know, so, um, yeah, that, that was a brilliant device, you know, in terms yeah, of I, 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 I recall we cooked that up sitting around the fireplace one night at a world horror convention in Connecticut. Hmm. Me, Bob Gleason, and Richard, you know. <laughs> well, and you must have, as a writer, you must have learned so much working with him over the years. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you had the experience of working with him as a, basically as directing the the book lines of Matheson, as well as the creative angle. I'm sure there are times, whether it's your Star Trek or your your you know, your other novelizations were, were you're applying things you learn from. I'm sure you know, they could be, you know, intuit, yeah, intuitively. I, yeah. I will say the job of being Richard Matheson, being the Matheson guy at Tor basically came into three parts. There was supervising, like I said, reprinting the old stuff, mm-hmm. um, making the deals, getting the books, and being also the designated Matheson guy in the office who, when publicity came in, hi, Greg, we need somebody to write a press release about Matheson. We need somebody to whatever. We have questions about Matheson's career. I was the guy you came to. Mm-hmm. And then there was also the, Tough job, dude. Yeah. Tough and job. then there was the job of actually editing his new stuff. And I think we did four or five books, original novels, Now You See It, Hunted Past Reason, um, Other Kingdoms, Seven Steps to Midnight. Working with him on an editorial basis on new books as well as reprinting the old stuff. And honestly, the other, the third part of the job was simply staying on top of what Hollywood was doing and working as the liaison between Tor and Hollywood whenever they made the movie versions of What Dreams May Come, Stir of Echoes, you know, I Am Legend, um, making sure that there was always a Tor tie-in edition out there to, you know, work on this. And, and by again, the way, I think Stir of Echoes is is the best of the lot. I think that they, I think David Kep like really updated the story and nailed it and made it feel modern, but still like, and it just, it's so sad that the whole Sixth Sense thing happened. And those of us who knew were immediately three weeks later saying, no, 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 1958, 1958, that story. <laughs> I remember my own father actually saying, oh, I saw that movie. It seemed like a ripoff of The Sixth Sense. And I'm going, ah! You know? <laughs> Not uh, you, Dad. Say, to give credit to movie, I, I always talk about the a movie because I'm the purists, the literary purists are, oh, my God, the Hollywood should leave Mr. Matheson alone. They, they messed with his book, you know. Drive honestly, those book. movies not only made a ton of money for Richard and Tor, but also um, they gave me the excuse to bring these books back. Somewhere in Time was out of print. And then I got word from Don Congdon that they were making it into a movie. So that gave me the, or not Somewhere in Time, but, you know. What do you think? But, yeah. But oh. that gave me the excuse to get up by the rights. We, were, we, were, we had a Matheson program, but we, again, we didn't buy them all in one big, it was, it was piecemeal. And a lot of times it was like, oh, Stir of Echoes is, you know, being made into a movie. That gave me an excuse to buy the book reprinted, put tie-in art on the cover, and then the books stay in print afterwards. I think eventually, yeah. indeed, the way it works, you eventually you lose your license to use the movie poster on the cover, but I think we then c- continued to put out Stir of Echo. So we st- Tor is still publishing Stir of Echo. So Tor is still publishing the fact so, uh, that- What Dreams May Come. What May Dreams May Come was out of print, you know. Mm. And good God, I Am Legend. I, remember, I, I, I have a rant about this, because I remember when I Am Legend came out, the Will Smith movie, 
And, you know, it's as an adaptation of the book, people have different opinions about but it was a bit amusing to go on the internet and see people, oh my God, poor Richard Matheson. Oh my God, what have they done to Richard Matheson? They're torturing him. And honestly, a lot of people, Richard Matheson must be rolling over in his grave. He's not dead, folks. Dead, yeah. Okay, you know. But, and in the meantime, I'll be honest, I'm looking at the sales figures. I'm looking at the royalty right. statements and I'm going, oh, that poor Richard Matheson. Poor I'm sure Richard, like I said, as an author, had his issues and he probably grumbled about the stuff they changed. But, you know, Oh, good God. Um, yeah, I always say, it's, people, it's okay. I, I see, again, I see literary press. Well, why did they have to take the old cover out and put out that tacky tie-in edition? It's a disgrace. They gave John God, you should way more copies. Sales are Richard, go up. As soon as the first trailer, as soon as the first trailer for the Will Smith movie came out, our sales on, before I even put Will Smith on the cover, and by the way, this was a full-time job. It took me like a year of negotiating with Warrior Brothers to do that. So, you know, um, that that does not just happen by accident um, or automatically. It, oh God, we, we, we were having to do other printings of our, uh, of I Am Legend. The book's just, you know, that, yeah, exactly. We put out a silver sticker. And, it was and just, then the printed. Uh... <laughs> and I know it may look tacky, but good God, it works. And we, like, and as I always point out, even if you do not like the movie, even if the movie disappointed you, what this means, it's not even just a matter of, okay, money, but um, 500,000 new readers discovered that book. There are people who are reading Mitchell Matheson now who never heard of him, who, you know, again, we sold something like 500,000 copies, I think, of the... Well, and it, before, before the Will... <laughs> That is, that is 500 new readers discovering Richard Matheson. Yeah. And that happened with What Means They Come. What Means They Come was out of print. Then the Robin Williams movie came out, and it was on the New York Times bestseller list. So these things, you know, even if you have reservations about the movies, you know, like, good God, I, like I said, I, the, oh, no, they ruined, the, you know, I see people, oh, I wish Hollywood would leave my favorite books alone because I love these authors so much. If you really love the authors, these movies are helping, you know, even if you helping don't like them, movies, they are, you know. Well, they change the conversation. Not just financially. I mean, it, it, it's keeping Richard, Matt, those movies helped keep Roger Matheson in the print. They gave yeah. me the excuse to bring the books back. I mean, obviously I'm, you know, ranting here, but I'm sort of, in fact, I see this all the time of, oh, they, I wish if they were going to make that movie, they could just taken Richard's name off it and use a different title. Oh, no. so you want them to rip off Richard and not pay him money. Okay, yeah. fine. I understand. Okay. You know? Well, and the other thing is it changed the conversation because as a long time, as a lifelong Matheson fan, mm-hmm. that whole thing of, no, you do know his work. Yeah. You know, before yeah. I used to always like, he's the guy who wrote the thing on the wing of the plane for the Twilight Zone. David, I, I want to interrupt one really quick thing because I do have, I have one question for Greg specifically mm-hmm. related to editing Matheson. Well, wait, we'll, just, we'll get to that in a second, but let me just finish my point. But the, but the conversation changed then because now I say I am legend, period, and people know because of the Will Smith thing. No, I'm sorry. Now go, no, hey, go, John. Yeah, please. Greg, I know with, um, with Other Kingdoms, um, Gauntlet released a uncut version, mm-hmm. an unedited, you know, an author's preferred text. Um, and I've I've kind of heard Barry's description of 
the, the book, but I'd love to hear from your perspective, the changes that went into Other Kingdoms for the tour edition. Okay, well, sure. Other Kingdoms was oh, we're getting the, dirty the now. very last book. That was the last book, the last original novel we published. And it was an interesting book. And yeah, we, again, Richard was very receptive to editing. Granted, at that point, he was 87 or something. So again, I didn't put him through too many rewrites because there was a degree. And I'll be honest, there, I remember going to actually Tom Dorian and saying, you know, look, this is not I Am Legend. This is not the greatest Richard Matheson novel ever written. It is possibly the last Richard Matheson novel ever written. We need to publish this, you know. And it's a very good, interesting book, which actually would make a great movie. Yeah. Um, my issues with it, I remember I think how, Part of me always feels like I'm violating the editor-author confidentiality by talking about early drafts because no one wants to see their, you know. But, you know, I remember um, there were issues about, um, I thought that it took a little too long to get to the heart of the book, that there was a bit too much backstory. I thought, oh, well, you know, the book book really starts about chapter five. And we went back and forth, and Richard went back and cut some stuff out. If it was me and if he'd, he'd been a younger writer, you know, I might have pushed harder for him to go back and cut more stuff out. Or maybe, do we really need chapter three kind of thing? But, you know, and he did a lot of research on where the book it begins in World War One. It's about a young veteran of the Great War who finds himself sort of rootless afterwards and gets kind of involved with this mysterious but beautiful older widow who turns out to be a witch. Um, I just I actually I, I describe it as sort of a fantasy, dark fantasy version of the graduate. Uh, <laughs> if Mrs. Robinson was a witch, um, <laughs> but you know, and then he gets involved with another woman who a young who is a who's a fairy princess, Catherine Ross. Okay, no, um, but you know, and it's a really interesting. Book. It's got some wonderful passages, and I, I wanted to get, get to him and the and the witch faster, you know, less of the backstory. There was also, there was one scene, and this is, I read this up only to mention how Richard was receptive to uh, editorial changes, and also how, like I said, Richard was all over the place, the, the, the difference in tone between Hell House and Somewhere in Time. There was one very, very graphic horror sequence near the end of the manuscript. That was, in fact, very, very powerful, very, very well written, but I thought was at odds with the tone of this particular book. It was a scene that would have worked very good in Hell House, but would have stood out like a sore thumb in Somewhere in Time. And at this point, there is a sort of romanticism to other kingdoms. There's this forest, and there's a... He... Matheson's spirit is... Oh, I know. Greg. A really we... shocking... Sorry, Greg, you froze up for a bit, so... Yeah, I'm seeing your internet connection is unstable. Okay. Yeah. But okay, basically, it was a really sort of scary Clive Barker esque horror gory scene, body horror scene. I thought this is not going along with the lo- touching love story between the young man and the fairy princess. So, at my behest, we cut that one out. I don't know if I've ever read the uncut version. Maybe he restored it. But that was, that was one of the arguments. You know, we went back and forth, and Richard again didn't. You know, there was a reasoning to it. I thought, oh, this is a good book, but I, oh, this scene to me is belongs in Hell House, not in this book. Um, and that was, that's one of the issues we discussed, I remember. Hmm. It's okay. kind of the best of both worlds. There's, there's the specialty press edition of that, but then there's the 
And I remember we went back and forth on the title several times too, but that's the case where I think Richard came up with Under Kingdoms, but it was not the first title. I can't even remember what the last, we, we went back and forth and that was the case where un, unlike say Hundred Past Reason, I liked Other Kingdoms, he liked Other Kingdoms, but it took yeah. some back and forth to get there. I, I will say as an editor, if I have one thing I'm obnoxious about, I tend to be a hard ass about titles, you know, um, and I torture authors over titles. I, I, you know, you know I, I'm not just gonna throw a book out there with the first title, it just happens to be on the title page, you know. Um, the title yeah. is part of the marketing and I- Sure. I, I will torture authors over titles, okay. I was taught when uh, um, my publisher, Eraserhead Press, who does mostly bizarro titles, like um, our editor, uh, Rose, like titles, titles, titles are everything because people nowadays are scrolling on Amazon. And like the title is a lot of times the one thing they're seeing that's going to cause them to click on something. And, and I think it's more important than ever. But you mentioned, I, by the way, that Richard was not always wedded to his titles. Like I said, now you see it started out as Magician's Choice, which honestly mm-hmm. I thought was a perfectly fine title. It was Richard who changed his mind. And at some point along the period, just, oh, Magician's Choice turned into Now You See It, which is also a very good title. So I never made a basic yeah. fuss about it. But that, that was something that was not generated by Tor or me. That was something that Richard, over the course of the first draft and the second draft, the book acquired a new title, you know. All right. Well, um, yeah, geez. Oh, one uh, more title thing, if you'll allow me. Sure. I will admit that we're talking about the, the synergy between trying to capitalize on the movies and the books. I, I will cop to, in fact, publishing Bid Time Return as Somewhere in Time and The Shrinking Man as The Incredible Shrinking Man, because those are the titles. I don't think I was the first person to do so. Yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, One more think, time is a better I did time. not ever publish I Am Legend as the Omega Man, you'll notice. <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're, especially in the case of Summer in Time, that title so much, the it's movie is so beloved and so eclipsed yeah. the original title that, indeed, even Richard, when he went and did a stage musical version of the story later in life, the musical is titled Somewhere in Time. Because yeah, I think occasionally only- I get purists, but you, don't you mean Bid Time Return? Yeah, 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 yeah. At this point, the only that, time it's been bid time returned since the original publication uh, or the, the paperback publication is I think Buccaneer did kind of a library hardcover edition under that title. But all the other all the other reprints since the movie have been as somewhere in time. It's and a better title. I, 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 I do not apologize for that. You know, that's that's the title people look for when they're looking for that book. And for for uh, since that book actually takes place at the Hotel Dell uh, in Coronado here in San Diego, I just um, I've decided the next time I read it, I'm going to go stay at the Hotel Dell. <laughs> you know, read it. I I wish I had these, but there's a there's a group Insight, the International Network of Somewhere in Time Enthusiasts, yeah. and at one point they offered. Um, a set of cassettes that were basically Matheson's cassettes because he re- he would dictate the story. And what he did is he, you know, hopped in the car and he drove down to Coronado and he, he was doing recordings of the development of the story. And they made copies of his original cassettes and sold them. I would love to hear some of those yeah. formative, you know, 
elements of bedtime return. That sounds um, like a mission for YouTube, in my opinion. <laughs> That's what like the last couple days. <laughs> yeah, the last couple of days uh, when I, I found all these old like Rod Serling and Ray Bradbury UCLA lectures on YouTube and it's just like mind blowing what we can find. And that's kind of what started this is because there's not enough out there on 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 Matheson as a guy who. Fortunately, the um, like I, I want to say the Writers Guild did a lot of recordings with him. Yeah. Um, television um, archives. Yeah, I watched those. Yeah, they're really good. But to sum this up a little bit and to kind of bring this home, um, I want to, I'm going to come to John in a little bit, but one last thing with Greg, as, as the person who kind of shepherded this, this wave of Matheson and overseeing what happened with the I am legend tie in and what dreams may come. And, and, um, and, and I want, I do want to tell a personal story about what, what dreams may come on, on something, which is that, um, long before there was a movie in the mid nineties, my, um, my mom's twin sister, my aunt Lola lost her husband. He passed away in the mid nineties and I gifted her a copy of this edition of what dreams may come before it was a movie. Right. And she was not a genre reader, just a regular, you know, reads mainstream books and stuff. And, and in the, aftermath of losing my uncle she read this and just you know we had it was funny we had a really powerful you know connection talking about it and then when the movie came out it was funny because she called me and she said oh david i just didn't like that movie as much as the book (laughs) right and i said well but and lola aren't you glad other people are going to be finding it (laughs) and she said good point right and this wave that we saw from the, those last couple movies, you oversaw that, Greg. And I'm wondering, and you had the moment to get to call Richard and say, you're number two on you know, the New York Times bestseller list. Like, what can we learn from that revival? And how can we as people who are the ones saying like, oh, yes, but you should read the books. Or yeah, he wrote "I Am Legend." Like, how do we further the the mission of of Richard of of spreading the word about Richard Matheson? Well, I'm practically Pavlovian about it on Facebook at this point, it, to the point that actually I have a few friends who actually at this point laugh because they keep pretty much like, okay, someone mentioned somewhere in time, I'm, okay, counting down to Greg showing up to mention Richard Matheson. Listen, you know, right? And do, do you know he also wrote *I Am Legend*? You know, etc. You know. Fortunately, like I said, the books are still out there. Like I said, nice thing is, like Hollywood keeps discovering his stuff. I'm, I, I will say there was one project I was relieved never happened. Just to digress briefly, at one point Universal was going to do *The Incredible Shrinking Man* again as a comedy with Eddie Murphy. Yeah, and that would actually was going to present me with a moral dilemma because. As a responsible editor for Tor, and as Richard's responsible editor, how do I not capitalize on this by putting out a tie-in edition? On the other hand, that borders on false advertising because the book is not remotely funny. It isn't like I, I remember sort of thinking, I, I really have the nerve to put a you know picture of a zany Eddie Murphy on the cover of 
shrinking man by Richard Matheson. <laughs> I think I even asked Richard about this. You know, Richard, because at this point it was in development and it thankfully it never got out of development hell. I said, Richard, if it, it comes to pass, <laughs> what do you want me to do? And I think he just kind of sighed wearily and said, so I'd be like, well, do what you have to do, Greg. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I admit to breathe, even though it probably would have sold some shrinky mans, I I, I kind of breathed a sigh of relief when I was spared that dilemma and that that project just kind of withered away. Okay. But no, part of the job was keeping track of the stuff. I read Variety and there were projects, you know, and oh, and every time I would see, oh, Count Death Ship has been optioned. I'd get on the phone and, okay, Susan Raymer, what's going on? And keep me, and I would say it, Richard's agents, Don Kong and Susan Raymer, were very good always about keeping me in the loop and letting me know what was happening. One of my disappointments, at one point, there was talk of Somewhere in Time, the musical, moving to Broadway. Yes, I had conversation with Susan and had that happened. Oh, by God, I wanted to put out a, as seen on Broadway, with the, you know, hey, look what that did for Wicked, you know? Yeah. Uh, look what the musical did for Wicked. Um, I, 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 there had already been preliminary conversations about putting out a Broadway tie-in edition, which to date has not happened. And again, there were projects that fell through. Like I said, the Arnold Schwarzenegger, Ridley Scott version of I Am Legend, which never happened. There was going to be a movie version of Countdown that, you know, never happened. Um, you know. I, I, the, I, the Ridley Scott I Am, I Am Legend was Schwarzenegger, you know, like... You know, I'm, coming out. I'm staying in here. You can't get me out. Cortman, go away. Like, I just, it always cracked me up. But, you know. Well, part of part of the job of being Richard Matheson's editor was, in fact, A, staying in touch with Susan Raymer and indeed just sort of reading Entertainment Weekly and Variety and keeping track of this stuff. So we were never caught flat-footed. And the minute I read one of these things was, hi, I'm Greg Cox. I'm a tour of books. I understand you're making one of our books into a movie. There you go. Yes. I, I I had some preliminary phone calls about that. Although, I don't know how much time you have. I, I was telling you this on Facebook yesterday. The first time when the Ridley Scott version was in pre-production, I called Warner Brothers. And half the battle is finding the right person to answer the phone. The first time I got there, I was like, explain, hi, I, we're the publisher. We'd love to work with you on a tie-in edition. I actually got some person who was very nice, but like, oh, no, no, you're mistaken. Um, our new movie is not based on a book. I, I said, well, no, you're doing I Have Legend. Our book is I Have Legend. Oh, I think that's just a coincidence. Our, our movie is a remake of The Omega Man. Right. <sighs> yeah. They, they weren't lying. <laughs> they weren't lying, but it took some effort to, yes, but The Omega Man was based on I Am, really? That being said, I will say by the time the Will Smith version came around, the war people, are, people were, were a pleasure to work with, were very helpful, and indeed used Richard in their publicity. They actually requested, we actually, they requ we actually donated, they actually asked for copies of the book to go with the press kit and to extend out. They arranged for a private screening for Richard to see the movie in advance. Richard was not young then, they could not exactly send him on a 20 city publicity tour, but you know, what he what publicity he could do. So they were, you know, they were actually sometimes this is not always the case. They were very cooperative. We had meetings, you know, I we think that with, was a key. Their, their publicists came and met with our publicists. We tried to synchronize. It was it was how a system is how how it is supposed to work. 
I think that was Akiva Goldman's influence. Um, as the writer producer, I think he Akiva Goldman gets a lot of crap, but I actually think he's doing great stuff with Star Trek, and I'm excited yeah. for Strange New World. And, and like I said, there was a case where, kind. So the the Warner Brothers publicity people I'm blanking on their names at the moment were again not always the case. Very cooperative, worked with us, kept us in the loop. You know, um, worked with Richard. Did not bury Richard in the small print print of this press release and like i said they even we even i remember at one point we did we donated a large quantity of the book to them that they could include with the press kits and things with you know um so that that's that was one of the sort of you know where everything came together and they benefited we benefited richard benefited which is why like i said i was sort of annoyed and amused to see all the oh my god did you see what warner brothers screwed over richard matheson he must be furious you know and it's uh, yeah it sounds like it's all good folks you know um they treat them better than meanwhile i'm looking at the royalty statements that are going out to richard and you know yeah you know (laughs) it's nice of you to get righteously indignant on his behalf but trust me you know he okay. will survive this, you know. <laughs> so I have one last question for John, and then I want to wrap things up. Um, uh, my two favorite editions that I've ever seen of the Richard Matheson book are, I have this crazy version of Hell House that came out right around the time of the movie. Uh, Actually, much, that's much later. Oh, uh, is it? yeah. One Week in Hell, and then it has like a Stephen King blurb. Um, so I think yeah it's got to be later than 71 because if it has Stephen King blurb and then um, 71 is the original printing and then I like this one that's that was essentially a movie tie-in although not (laughs) one of the great novels of the occult terrifying story of demonic possession very um, uh, salacious that was the edition I first read and the edition before that the first paperback looks like a gothic it's the classic painting of a, of a woman in distress standing in front of a big house um actually i've got a oh i will say just to brag by the way that um that's what i talked about you know i have that edition too cover. yeah that was pos- quite possibly i think richard's favorite cover of all the tour editions yeah, I, I have that. He loved that cover, you know. So Centipede Press did a limited edition of, I think they only did 100 copies. Yes, they did 100 copies of Hell House. Um, but when they were doing this, I provided um, a cover gallery. So did they... oh, here it is. So here was the first paperback. <laughs> yes. Oh wow. And then of course the original hardcover as well. Awesome. But yeah, you know, my my love and kind of collection of I am legend eclipses everything, but I'll be the first to admit I, I can't pass up a cool looking alternative edition. I've got you know, it's, when Tor was reprinting everything in hardback or in trade paperback, I kept buying everything just to kind of grow oh, the library. So many different versions of it, yeah. Right. 
but but it's it's when you start getting into the, the foreign editions that it's fun because there's just yeah, you talk about strange cover art and designs. <laughs> and titles. Well, which, which book is it again that was published in France? Is Icy Breasts? Oh, uh, Saints de Glace is uh, Someone is Bleeding. Right, which was Icy Breasts in France. Yep. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, that's, and that's actually coming out on Blu-ray. Oh, um, I've never I've actually never Orber. seen that one. Uh, yeah. Well, I saw that there's a Charles Bronson Bronson version of uh, Ride the Nightmare too. That I uh, is it Cold, Cold Sweat? Sweat Cold Sweat. Yeah. yeah, and I just put it on my IMDb to watch list. I'm gonna have to try to track that down. Well, I know the, the Alfred Hitchcock version actually. If you watch it, pops up on MeTV occasionally because they run they run Alfred Hitchcock every night. So if you kind of keep an eye out for it, it pops yep. up. It's part of the rotation. Mm, yeah, I bet. Okay, so John, starting with you, summing up, um, <laughs> what do you think is the, in, in a nutshell, what do you think is Richard Matheson's greatest contribution to 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 the genre, to fiction? Well, you know. I know I, that's a big question. <laughs> but Greg touched upon this earlier. I Am Legend, Begat, Night of the Living Dead, Night of the Living Dead, Begat, <laughs> an entire genre um, that wouldn't exist today if not for I Am Legend. I, I actually, um, a, a dear friend of mine um, passed away last year. His name was Richard Ritchie. And Richard Ritchie was the person who gave George Romero I Am Legend to read. Um, He was going off to Korea. I'm sorry, Vietnam. He was going off and he gave George two books. He can't remember what the other book was. He gave him I Am Legend. He paid for six months rent for their studio. Comics book. Production production (laughs) company. And said, read this and when I come back, let's, let's talk about maybe we can do something like this. And and I will say this, George Romero freely came out and said, oh, yeah. I ripped off I Am Legend. I ripped off Richard Matheson, which I think is an oversimplification and, and not completely true. Clearly, I Am Legend inspired Night of the Living Dead, but not in the way that, um, you know, people really rip off stories. But, you know, the stories are completely different. There's themes and tone and things that are in I Am Legend that Romero took into Night of the Living Dead. Um, but I, I think, you know, to, to say, even for Romero to claim that he ripped it off isn't a really accurate assessment. Um, and from my perspective... Well, that's why I like to use the terminology, Richard is the grandfather of the entire yeah. zombie apocalypse genre, which gives um, Romero credit for being the father of the zombie apocalypse. But yeah, you know, he 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 gets it in the lineage. You know, yeah. Richard, you know, one step removed there is the grandfather of the entire zombie apocalypse. And, and for me personally, I came to I Am Legend because of that, and so I I can't look at that as anything but a positive thing because you know my my awareness of my love of Matheson came from that connection, and again, reading the book, even when I read the book the first time there were elements where it's like that the siege of, you know, these creatures coming and trying to get at them uh, or get at Neville. 
but it was, you know, it was very different than what Night of the Living Dead was. Um, but I loved the book so much that it, you know, it, it changed my love of reading. It changed my love of fiction. And it, and it, you know, started this love of Matheson and had me go down the path of finding and reading everything I could that had his name on it. And then, you know, being, you know, pleasantly surprised every time something would turn up and it'd be, oh, wait, the, the trilogy of terror was a Richard Matheson. Night Stalker was Richard Matheson. The Twilight Zones were Richard Matheson. Um, so it just became one of those those things that you know I would I would have these realizations of oh Matheson's been with me far longer than I knew it. Um, exactly. I cannot remember when I became. We talked going back to the beginning of this panel. I don't remember when I became aware of Richard Matheson as a person. I cannot remember a time when I wasn't aware of the Shrinking Man and the Twilight Zone episodes. Yeah. And, the Vincent Price movies and probably reading some of the stories and anthologies. You know, it just was always just sort of there, you know. And I'm not sure when I connected the dots on yeah. this. <laughs> All right. So I gotta I gotta wrap this up um here pretty quick. We've gone pretty long, but uh Greg, any last and final thoughts on 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 um and I'm I'm gonna lean on after I'm I think there needs to be a Matheson podcast like Dickheads. I can't do it because I'm already doing Philip K. Dick. But but John, I'm going to encourage you. <laughs> um, I can teach you the ways. Um, but I think a Matheson podcast should exist that goes through his whole collection, his whole chronology. There, um, there's there's so much to be explored. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. But Greg, uh, any final thoughts on... Um, and, you know, we'll probably do this again. Maybe... I think uh, um, Scow had a great idea for uh, uh, bringing Mick Garris along because I think uh, his Matthew Matthew Bradley will oh, be God, a yes. person you'll want to talk to, particularly. Well, I think we we approached Matthew about this, and he's he's he not. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I yeah. thought te- the 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 technology might uh, discourage him, but I think you get him talking, and particularly when it comes to uh, the film and television work uh, and adaptations and things, he's really. <laughs> Wrote the book. It's a small world. I mentioned that, that Matthew and I used to work together in the same office. I knew that. Yes. Yeah. So I, yeah. So yeah, we, you know, yeah. Matthew Bradley is one of the leading authorities on Richard Matheson. Has written books on Richard Matheson. Um, and yeah, by coincidence, yeah, I met Richard when we were both working for Arbor House back in the late '80s. He was in the publicity department. I was the editorial assistant, and we've been Matheson heads together ever since you know all right any, guess, any last thoughts i had closing statement like a part of like my opening spiel which is i've been delivering for years that you know even if you do not know who richard matheson is his work has touched you you knew his, you know his work and then leapfrogging on what john was saying about you know him influence from romero and then spreading out from there beyond just all of us uh Richard is extraordinarily influential in that he has inspired so many other writers and creators. One of the pleasures of being Richard's editor was it was never hard to get quotes and endorsements. I mean, okay, David Scow turned me down, but um, yeah, you know, Ray Bradbury, you know, Stephen King, Dean Koontz, you know, King has been always been very generous and open about saying that Matheson is one of the primary influences on his work. That you know, there's a famous quote which I probably use to death on covers, 
that said something like, everything I learned about writing, I learned from Richard Matheson. So Matheson sets ripples, you know, he, one of the most influential in probably the, in, in, you know, fantasy, horror, and science fiction of the 20th century, you know, um, he, he, it's hard to, you know, butterfly effect. Okay, that's Bradbury, but still, you know, um, spreading out, you know, zombies via Romero, um, horror via Stephen King, you know, it, and of course, the Night Stalker has its own, which led to the X-Files, you know, um, and let us note the X-Files credited this by introducing Senator Richard Matheson on an episode. So the number of people out there who, you know, now, you know, who are inspired by Richard just, you know, blossoms outwards. So, you know, astonishingly influential, you know. Hell, he's even, the number of number of Simpsons episodes that have been inspired by Matheson, you know. Even if you don't know Matheson, you have seen the Simpsons episodes, the parodies of Nightmare on 20,000 Feet or Omega Man and whatever, you know. Mm. So, on yeah. that note, um, we're going to close up shop here, but um, definitely... Uh, we'll probably I, now. I'm going to have to do more Matheson. I just uh, um, he is one of the greatest writers of all time, so it's, it's very hard not to. Um, but John, Greg, thank you for joining me, and uh, Mr. Scott, wherever you are at this point, uh, thank you for joining me for this uh, discussion about Richard Matheson. All the books are out there; you can find them, um, and. Uh, Maybe somebody out there listening wants to start a Matheson podcast with John. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, thanks for joining us on Postcards from a Dying World. <laughs>